It's good to see you here this morning. I'm glad you came. Because otherwise I'd just be standing up here in a bunch of empty seats and uh, that wouldn't be good. We are on Sermon 5 in our series on understanding the Bible. We've looked at different contexts in the Bible. We looked at the law of Moses, and that's a context that runs through about 90% or 80% of the Bible. It was given by God to Moses, and it goes right on up to the cross. Last week, we began looking at another context, and that is the kingdom, the Jewish messianic kingdom. It begins with a covenant given to Abraham, and we're going to see that it, it will continue to run through the book of Acts. There's a, a chart that hopefully you got this morning. I don't think there was enough printed. We ran out. Um, does any, any couples have like duplicates they could share with somebody who didn't get a couple who didn't get any at all maybe? Okay. Uh, Darlene and Jason, you didn't get a one, did you? Okay. Neil, could you run that down to them? Good. Oh, never mind. Dual got one. Okay. Any, anybody else need a chart? Oh, right here, Kathy. Watson, right here. Neil, you still got your extra? Okay, right here. Oh, you're down to one. Remember? Okay. Okay. Jeremy got one in the back. Oh, there's another one. Okay. For those two. Good. All the logistic issues, I tell you, running a church. Last week, what we looked at was in the Old Testament, a bunch of prophecies that had to do with what the Messianic kingdom would look like. And on your chart, you can see on the left-hand side there, uh, a, a number of things we looked at. Now, this is not a complete comprehensive list of all the prophecy. There were hundreds of them. But basically, it's enough for you to get the idea uh, of what I'm trying to get across here. Today, I want to look at how Jesus gave credibility to what he claimed. He claimed to be that Messiah. He claimed to be the fulfillment of that prophecy. Now, frankly, anybody could do that. I could claim that I am that, uh, that person. But what we want to look at today is his proof. How did he prove he was? Now, in one of the apocryphal books in the Bible, well, it's not in the Bible, uh, at least not in our Bible, um, is called the Infancy Gospel of Jesus. Anybody ever heard of the book of the Infancy Gospel of Jesus? It has Jesus as a child doing miracles. For instance, he, he makes a bird out of mud, and then he breathes on it, and it becomes a real-life bird, and it, it flies away. In that same apocryphal book, it says that Jesus cursed a boy, and the boy died immediately. Another one, uh, a boy bumps into him, and Jesus gets mad at him, and he 
curses him, and that boy dies as well. And then his parents come and complain uh, to, to Mary and Joseph because Jesus killed their son, and, and Jesus strikes them blind. Another time he, in this book, it says he carried water on a piece of cloth and he produced a feast from a single grain of wheat. And, and then Jesus or Joseph was making a bed and he ran out of lumber. So Jesus stretched the piece of wood so that his father could uh, make that bed. According to, to this story, this book, Jesus had to be taught how to use his supernatural powers for good. How ridiculous. How ridiculous. Is there some rhyme or reason to the miracles that Jesus did? Or are they just a bunch of random acts? Jesus went over here and, well, there was a need, so he took care of that need, and then he went over here. You know, it, is it all just random, or, or is there something behind it? Well, I want to share with you today that indeed there is some rhyme or reason to what Jesus did on earth. Now, <clears throat> to understand this, we really have to understand the concept of the Jewish Messiah, we have to understand what Jesus understood his ministry to be. And to do that, I want to go to Luke chapter 24. And in Luke 24, verses 25 and 27, this is after the resurrection, and Jesus is talking, and he's explaining his ministry, what he did on earth. And he says, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So the first thing we have to understand is that Jesus understood that the scriptures were about him. The prophecies in the Old Testament were about him. In Luke 24, 44, it says he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So to really understand the ministry of Jesus on earth, we really have to go back to the Old Testament. Because he says it was the Old Testament that spoke of him and his ministry. And Jesus states clearly that he is the fulfillment of, of the Old Testament scripture. Now what he's referring to here is the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. Now what, what is a Messiah? Well, the word Messiah comes from a Hebrew word and it simply means the anointed one or the chosen one. <clears throat> it is understood to reference an individual who would come to Israel to fulfill their prophecies of a king and a kingdom and would be a, a deliverer. Now, at the time of the birth of Jesus, we have to put this in context. Israel was under Roman domination. Okay? They were under the, th the thumb of the Roman Empire. So, at the time of Jesus' birth, 
The land did not belong to Israel. They were under control of the Romans. The, there was a prophecy concerning a Messiah, a deliverer, a chosen one. And all of Israel anxiously awaited for that chosen one who would deliver them from the oppression of the cruel Romans. Now, I did a little research this week. I, I Googled it. I love Google. Oh. <clears throat> there were five men before Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah. And coincidentally, there were five men after Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah. So counting Jesus, 11 people stood up and said, I am that man that was prophesied. Ten of them couldn't back it up, though. One could. Well, let's look at some of these prophecies, and I'm going to go fast. Okay, I'm sorry, Darlene, I'm going to go fast again. Uh, but I want us to look at some of these prophecies. First of all, there are prophecies in Scripture about the conception and the birth of Jesus. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. That's Isaiah, Old Testament. New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, 20-23. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So, from his very conception, God is saying, Old Testament prophets, prophets are being fulfilled. This Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus had no control over that. Some people say, well, you know, Jesus manipulated the Old Testament prophecies to fit himself in there. Jesus had no control over where he was going to be born. Okay, so eh, that one's out. All right, Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who shall be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old and from ancient time. Okay, Old Testament prophecy. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Okay, fulfillment of prophecy. Again, out of Jesus' control. There's nothing he could do to manipulate it. He is fulfilling prophecy. <clears throat> but then we get to his life. And we get to his ministry. And the purpose of his miracles, we're going to see, is to give credibility to his words. And we find that over in Matthew chapter 11. Verses 1 through 5. This is a crucial scripture passage in this study, I think. It says, When Jesus had finished giving these instructions to his 12 disciples, he went out to teach and preach in towns throughout the region. John the Baptist, who was in prison, 
heard about all the things the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? Jesus told them, Go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. (coughs) When John the Baptist asked Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Are are, are you the one that's been prophesied? Are are you the one expecting? (coughs) Jesus did not go into a long theological sermon about it. What he said was this, watch what I'm doing. See what I'm doing. My actions are proving my words. (coughs) Excuse me. So, the prophecies concerning the Messiah in the conditions of what the kingdom would be like that we looked at last week, those are being fulfilled in what Jesus is doing. In fact, the purpose of the prophecies, <coughs> the purpose of the prophecies was to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. That's why the prophecies were there in the first place. So Jesus teaching that he's Israel's Messiah is the primary context of the gospel. Did you get that? Let me say it again. Jesus teaching that he is Israel's Messiah is the primary context of the Gospels. So when we go to the Gospels, we want to have in our mind, Jesus is proving he's Israel's Messiah. Okay, we'll keep that context foremost. The miracles back it up. So, Let's look at the conditions that we set forth last week as what the kingdom is going to be like, and let's look at the miracles of Jesus and see see how they fit, all right? The first one, and it's on your chart there, the very first miracle that Jesus did was to change water into good wine. We saw last week from Isaiah that one of the conditions of the the kingdom is that there would be an abundance of good wine. Now, I personally find that humorous. Of all the conditions of the kingdom, good wine is up there at the top. Now, I don't actually drink alcoholic beverages myself, okay? It's a choice that I have made. Uh, it has nothing to do with my Christianity. Well, it has something to do with my Christianity, but it has to do with my testimony. But anyhow, Jesus has nothing against good wine. Over in John chapter 2, let me read the miracle, and we can fit it in, into it, its place. On the third day, a wedding took place in Canaan of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. 
Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind they used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Jesus didn't just turn water into wine. He turned water into the best wine. Okay? Because over in Isaiah, the prophecy was that during the kingdom time, there would be abundance of not just wine, but good wine. Now, I wouldn't know good wine from bad wine, probably. Okay? But what Jesus did there in his first miracle in Canaan of Galilee is the first of the signs through which he is going to reveal his glory and going to be the credibility for which his disciples are going to believe on him. So we're going to put a check mark there. Abundance of good wine. He fulfilled that Old Testament prophecy. Let's look at the next one. In that same passage in Isaiah we looked at last week, it says there's going to be no hunger. So over in Mark chapter 6, 41, 42, we read, taking the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven. Jesus spoke a blessing and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples and they set before the people and he divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. Once Jesus fed 5,000 men, not including women and children, with five loaves and two fishes, and he had 12 baskets left over. (coughs) Another time Jesus fed men, again, not counting women and children, 4,000 of them with seven loaves and a few fishes. And it says they had large baskets of food left over. What's Jesus doing? Just satisfying the hunger of the people that were following him? No, he is giving evidence that he is the Messiah because under the Jewish Islamic or Jewish kingdom, there would be no hunger. And if he can take five loaves and two fishes and feed 5,000 men plus women and children, that's ample evidence enough that nobody would ever go hungry ever again. The next one we saw. (coughs) Got that little tickle. In Genesis, we read that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Israel. Let me read in Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. Says, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, if you're not familiar with Tyre and Sidon, 
these are Gentile areas. These are not Jewish areas. He went to some Gentiles. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. You know, at first, this kind of sounds a little bit cruel, doesn't it? You know, that this woman wants her daughter healed. But, but remember, the context. Jesus is showing himself to be Israel's Messiah, and she's a Gentile. And the promise that God gave Abraham is the Gentiles would be blessed through Israel, through believing Israel, through the Messianic kingdom, not apart from it. So healing her daughter is kind of actually getting the cart before the horse. Says Israel must believe first, then the Gentiles would be blessed. 95% of the ministry of Jesus is amongst the Jews because they needed to receive their Messiah for the blessing then to flow on to the Gentiles. So all the nations will be blessed? Yes, he showed that God, that he could, as a Messiah, even bless the Gentiles. The next thing we saw from Deuteronomy last week was that there would be prosperity. Saw that in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And in Luke 4.18, says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, the blind will see, and the oppressed will be set free. Jesus says, part of my ministry is that I am <clears throat> come to, to set the oppressed free. That, that's eliminating poverty. In fact, Jesus praises giving to the poor in his earthly ministry. So prosperity, although he didn't give out a bunch of money, yet he's still saying, I can do that. Okay, I can do that. The next one we saw from Isaiah chapter 25 was that he would, that the Messiah would have control over death. And during Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He raised the widow's son at Nain. He raised Jairus' daughter. <coughs> All of that to prove that he had control over death. And then the cherry on top of the whipped cream, on top of the ice cream, he raised himself from the dead. I mean, that's pretty something. I mean, this isn't Princess Bride where you're nearly dead or mostly dead. I mean, Jesus was dead, okay? 
And usually dead people can't do anything. Jesus, even though dead, raised himself from the dead. That's the power. Check mark. Control over death. Last week we saw that during the reign of the Messiah, there's going to be great rejoicing. And in Mark 11, beginning in verse 8, it says, Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed, shouting, Hosanna, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. There's great rejoicing. This is the, the so-called triumphal entry, the Palm Sunday thing. People saw them as the promised Messiah, and they rejoiced. There was great rejoicing fulfilling that prophecy. Another one we saw last week was uh, over in Isaiah 35 where during the kingdom, there's not, there, there'll be no sickness anymore. And Matthew 8, 16 says, When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word, and he healed all the sick. Double underline, all the sick. Not some. Not just those who had enough faith. He healed every single person who came to him sick. Matthew, Matthew 12, 15. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from a place. A large crowd followed him and healed all who were ill. The important here, as I said, is the word all. Jesus proved there is not a sickness on earth that he could not heal. Because during that kingdom period, there's no sickness on earth anymore. Every single person is healed, all of them. In order for there to be no sickness, the Messiah had to heal everyone. So, no more sickness. Healed the blind, healed the deaf, healed the lame. Every single one, check mark, check mark, check mark. He's proving he's the Messiah. And then one we looked at last week, that Jesus had control over the natural world. He calmed the stormy waters. Remember the story of Jesus sleeping in the back of the boat? Oh, I love that story. Jesus is so cool. Okay. In a storm, he's in the back of the boat. He's sound asleep. He's just resting. Contrast that to the disciples who come back to him and say, Teacher, don't you care we're all going to drown? Okay. Jesus wakes up. He rebukes the wind. He says to the waves, Silence, be still. So suddenly the wind stopped. There was a great calm. And they asked him, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And then the next part blows my mind. Now, it says, the disciples were absolutely terrified. Okay, They were terrified of the storm, but now they're absolutely terrified. And they say, who is this man? They asked each other. Even the wind and the waves obey him. Jesus has proven that he has control over 
what we might call nature or the natural world. He can calm storms just like that. He can cause a storm just like that. He can cause lightning, he can cause thunder, he can cause sunshine, he can cause rain, he can, cause... he can do anything. He has absolute control over the elements in the world. And so all of these miracles are directly related to an Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah. So, in the three years that Jesus ministered on earth, he proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. He showed that he could do all the miracles that were prophesied uh, concerning what the kingdom would look like. But there were some major prophecies he did not fulfill. And this is what led the Jewish people to turn against him. Three things on your chart there. The defeat of the enemies of Israel. That's what they were looking for. The Messiah is going to come and defeat our enemies. What did Jesus say about his enemies in Luke 6.27? But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Hmm. Okay, I'm putting myself back 2,000 years ago in a Jewish body, having a Jewish mind. I'm expecting the Messiah to uh, come in and, and overthrow Rome. And he is saying to love my enemies, do good to those who hate me. Uh, okay, that doesn't seem to make sense. Verse 35, Jesus, Luke 6, but love your enemies, do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. <coughs> no, not that, that's not what we want. We don't want to be kind to our enemies. I certainly do not want to give my money to an enemy, not expecting them to pay me back. Last week we saw one of the, the things about the Messiah is that there would be a rule of God on earth, a theocracy. <coughs> no more Caesar. God's on the throne. In Mark 12, 14 through 17, it says, They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay it or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought the, co the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Oh, man. We were counting on a Messiah who was going to release us from the dominion of Rome, and we wouldn't have to pay taxes anymore. And this guy is saying, pay your taxes to Caesar. Paying your taxes meant you were submissive to that controlling power. Now, <clears throat> that certainly did not go well. 
And last thing I want to look at here, we saw last week, is no injustice in the world. In Matthew chapter 5, 43 to 47, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Jesus is, is not saying to them, I am going to release you from injustice in the world. What he's saying is, love those who do the injustice in the world. Those three things made the difference between Palm Sunday and the crucifixion. Those three prophecies of the Messiah that Israel did not see, in fact, Jesus talked against, or said it's not going to happen, now anyway, those three things turned the Jewish people against him. And they crucified him, but he rose from the dead. You see, the crucifixion and the resurrection didn't change anything. They're, they're, they're all part of that Old Testament prophecy. After his resurrection, Jesus had to explain that even though the kingdom was at hand during his earthly ministry, he could not offer that kingdom until after his death and resurrection. I want to go back to the verses we started with earlier in Luke 24, verses 25 and 26. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Jesus is saying, Yes, I showed you that I'm the Messiah, but I could not offer the kingdom because I had to die first. In Luke 24, 44 to 46, Jesus is continuing on and he says to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand scripture. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. So the disciples got one thing right and one thing wrong. The thing they got right was Jesus is the Messiah. They got that right. The thing they got wrong is that he could not become the Messiah until after his crucifixion and resurrection. And so Jesus is explaining this to them. Okay. Now, I want you to put yourself back 2,000 years ago. Okay. Jesus has proven he's the Messiah. Got that down. Jesus says, but I could not become the Messiah until after the death and the resurrection. Okay. New truth. New understanding. Got it. Got it down. I get that. Now what? Now what? That is exactly the question the disciples had. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they asked the most wonderful question. 
says, so when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? If I could paraphrase what they said, they said this. Okay, we get you're the Messiah. We now get that you had to die first and be raised from the dead. So are you now going to establish your kingdom? Is there, is there anything we're missing? Is there anything else? Is, is, is there anything we don't know? Can we go out now and say, Jesus is the Messiah, believe in him, and the kingdom will come? And Jesus' answer is found in verse 7. He replied, The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. Talk about a vague answer. Come on. They want to know, know, is there anything else we don't know? Are you going to establish your kingdom? And Jesus said, maybe. (sighs) Maybe. Uh, You you know, that's not for you to know. What was it the angel said when Jesus ascended up into heaven? In in, in Acts chapter 1, beginning verse 10, says, as they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Ah, okay. How did we see him go? Well, we, see, we saw him go physically. We saw him go from having his feet on the earth to having his, his feet rising up into heaven. And the angel says, the same way you saw him go, he's coming back. I imagine the disciples had a little discussion after this. Okay? And, and uh, you know, the, what did they know? What, what didn't they know? Well, they knew Jesus was the Messiah. They knew he was the promised king. They knew he couldn't offer the kingdom before the cross. Uh, he evaded the question if he was going to set up the kingdom right away. Uh, but there is a promise he's going to return to earth again someday. That's about what they knew. Now, with 2,000 years of hindsight, what do we know? Well, we know that Jesus did not return to earth. He has not yet returned to earth to establish that Jewish messianic kingdom, the promised kingdom. Why? Is he going to? Why do we talk about going to heaven someday instead of looking forward to the return of Jesus to earth and setting up that kingdom where he sits on the throne of David and and all the nations of the earth are blessed through Israel. Why do we we talk about meeting Christ in the air instead of setting his feet on the earth? Well, stay tuned. We'll come back for the rest of the story. Let's pray.
Lord, <coughs> we have a wonderful book, the Word of God. And, and Father, you speak to us through it. <coughs> Help us, Lord, to understand it. Understand it in its context. Uh, understand what's going on, what happened. And Father, through the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we understand that, that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies to be Israel's Messiah. And that someday, Lord, those prophecies will be completely fulfilled because you are a God who keeps your promises. Thank you for your word today. And Father, as we continue to study, help us to, to understand what it is you're doing so that we can understand better what our part in it is. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.